Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the Saturday, March 11th reading of the Colorado Springs Gazette. Today we will be reading the following main articles. Runoff Near Certainty in Mayor's Race by Brianna Jett. Williams Cleared of Campaign Violation by Brianna Jett. Sex Assaults Climb at Air Force Academy by Nick Sullivan. Daylight Saving Time Starts Sunday. See DMV's Tips for Monday's Drowsy Drivers by Abby Sukup. And following up with miscellaneous articles. Runoff near certainty in mayor's race. Colorado Springs officials prepare with votes likely spread thin among 12 candidates by Brianna Gent. As ballots for the nonpartisan April 4th municipal election begin hitting residents' mailboxes, city officials are preparing for the likely possibility that two candidates will head for a showdown in May as they campaign to become Colorado Springs' next mayor. With 12 candidates in the crowded running to succeed Mayor John Suthers, who cannot run again for the office because of term limits, city officials and outside experts say a runoff election to determine Colorado Springs' next top leader is almost a guarantee. To win the mayor's seat in a general municipal election, a candidate must receive a majority of votes, or 50% of the vote, plus one vote to avoid a runoff election between the top two vote-getters in the mayoral race, City Clerk Sarah Johnson said. With near certainty, there will be a runoff, said Peter Braza, professor and chair of the mathematics department at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. In essence, the votes will be spread so thin among the 12 candidates that no one will reach, or frankly, probably even come close to 50%. If none of the mayoral candidates earn a majority of votes in the April 4th election, the city will hold a runoff election only 42 days later on May 16th, Johnson said. In a runoff, the candidate who earns the most votes will be named mayor, she said. Johnson's office is essentially working on two elections at the same time, she said. Her office mailed ballots for the all-mail April 4th election to voters on Friday. If a runoff happens, Johnson's office is working to mail out ballots on April 21st, though it has until May 1st to do so. The provision in city code for mayoral runoff elections came after the city around 2010 rewrote its charter to adopt a voter-approved, strong mayor form of government, Johnson said. Under that structure, an elected mayor, not a city manager, is Colorado Springs' full-time chief executive, with the power to enforce laws and ordinances, create a strategic plan for the city, and submit to the city council an annual budget, among others. The city council acts as a legislative branch. If it happens in May, this would be the third mayoral runoff election in Colorado Springs' history, Johnson said. The first was in 2011 when Steve Back edged out Richard Scorman, a businessman and former city councilman. Back earned 57% of the vote in the 2011 runoff election to Scorman's 42%.
The second time was in 2015 when Suthers was elected to his first term as mayor. That year, Suthers earned about 67.5% of the runoff election vote over the 32% challenger Mary Lou Makepeace earned. Makepeace is also a former mayor elected as Colorado Springs' first female mayor in 1997. In 2019, Suthers won his bid for re-election with a resounding 72.5% of the vote, so there was no runoff. Electing a mayor by majority of votes and not a plurality can help ensure a leader is elected whom the majority of voters don't object to, said Professor Josh Dunn, chairman of the Political Science Department at UCCS. This is a way of making certain whoever wins isn't strongly opposed by a lot of the electorate, which could happen if the system is just whomever gets the most votes wins, Dunn said. Johnson encouraged voters to cast their ballots in the April 4th election and not to wait to vote in a possible mayoral runoff, she said. On April 4th, voters will choose their next mayor, will select four candidates to fill four city council seats, and will also decide whether to extend a dedicated trails, open space, and parks, TOPS tax, for another 20 years, she said. A lot of people will take a look at the ballot and say, there's too many choices, I'll just wait for the runoff. But you don't get a choice, then, of who the top two mayoral candidates in the runoff are, and you don't get a chance to vote for council or the ballot issue, Johnson said. Mayoral candidates are businesswomen and former Colorado Springs City Councilwoman and El Paso County Commissioner Sally Clark, professional stand-up comedian and model Callan Reese Rodebaugh, former CIA security contractor John Tig Teagan, Entrepreneur and former Colorado Springs Small Business Development Administrator Yemi Mobilade, Electrical Engineering Contractor Christopher Mitchell, Community Advocate Lawrence Joseph Martinez, El Paso County Commissioner Longinos Gonzalez Jr., Colorado Springs City Council President Tom Strand, Small Business Owners Andrew Dalby and Jim Miller, former Councilman and El Paso County Commissioner Daryl Glenn, and Councilman Wayne Williams, who is also a former Secretary of State and County Commissioner. Williams cleared of campaign violation. Group that complained says city ruling marred by conflict by Brianna Gent. Mayoral candidate Wayne Williams did not violate city campaign code by partially depicting Colorado Springs Fire Department personnel, equipment, and facilities in three versions of a campaign ad he is airing, city officials said Friday evening. Following a review conducted by the city clerk's office and the Human Resources Department, reasonable grounds do not exist to establish a violation of city code or initiate enforcement action in municipal court. A city news release states, In a complaint filed Wednesday with the city attorney's office, nonpartisan resident group Integrity Matters claimed Williams violated city code by partially depicting Colorado Springs Fire Department personnel, equipment, and facilities in 6-second, 15-second, and 30-second versions of a campaign ad he is airing on Facebook. 
The complaint alleged Williams's ad unethically ties his campaign to city resources and gives the appearance the Colorado Springs Fire Department, which is a city department, is in support of his campaign. The group said it believed Williams violated a section of city code prohibiting the use of city resources to support or oppose directly or indirectly a person running for office, the retention of a person who is the subject of a recall election or an election issue. The city on Friday disagreed. The review found that no city resources were used to film the equipment, personnel, buildings, or logos of the Colorado Springs Fire Department contained in the advertisement, the release said. Williams said Friday the city's decision vindicates claims he made this week that the ad did not violate city code. I appreciate the quick and thorough review of the allegations. As I said, my campaign contacted the fire department and followed the instructions we were given. I'm glad to have the opportunity now to focus on the issues of the campaign and my support for public safety, transportation, and infrastructure, and economic vitality, he said. Williams said he was also gratified by the support of the Professional Firefighters Association, IAFF Local 5, but that is absolutely in their independent capacity. Integrity Matters President John Pitchford said Friday evening he believed the city employees conducting the investigation ruled for Williams out of fear of retaliation. These people are afraid to go up against Wayne Williams because he, they're afraid he's going to be their next employer, Pitchford said. Williams said the claim was without merit. Concerned about a possible conflict of interest, Integrity Matters on Friday morning called for an independent investigation into their complaint. City Attorney Wynetta Macy's office oversaw the investigation conducted by City Clerk Sarah Johnson and the Human Resources Department and Macy and Johnson report to Mayor John Suthers, who has endorsed Williams in his run for mayor. The group also called on the Colorado Secretary of State and Attorney General to assist in the matter. Neither the city attorneys nor the city clerk's offices immediately responded to the Gazette's request for more information, including whether the city would honor the group's request. Colorado Secretary of State spokesman Jack Todd said by email that because Colorado Springs is a home rule charter city, the Secretary of State would have no jurisdiction over a case such as this. The State Attorney General's office did not immediately respond to the Gazette's request for more information. Pitchford said Friday that Integrity Matters should continue demanding an independent investigation into their complaint. He questioned why Williams was allowed to depict city fire personnel and facilities while another mayoral candidate's similar request was denied. This discrepancy between two outcomes, both are running for mayor, one gets special privilege while the other gets denied. Of course, it needs to be investigated. Sally Clark also is running an ad that partially depicts fire trucks, firefighting department, and a firehouse though no logos are clearly visible. She said this week she used stock footage and photos, including one depicting fire equipment from a South Carolina town, after she reached out to the Colorado Springs Fire Department, which told her she could not film in front of the fire museum at 375 Printers Parkway. In a February 7th email to Clark, obtained by the Gazette, the fire department's deputy chief of support services, Steve Dubé, 
referred to the same section of city code regarding use of city resources to campaign. A monument sign for the fire museum is partially depicted in all three versions of Williams's ad. In a statement he gave to investigators, Williams' campaign manager, Ryan Lynch, said the team went out of their way to contact the fire department to make sure that we were in bounds. Lynch also said he had an attorney review the ad before it aired. All of our shots were from the street area and rights of way, Lynch told investigators. Fire department spokesman Captain Mike Smaldino told investigators he denied the request from the Williams's campaign to film indoors at the fire museum but told them they could only film in areas that could be accessed by the public and from the public view. Integrity Matters group members said this week they believe the areas Williams' team assessed to film footage were on the fire department training center grounds owned by the city. Sex Assaults Climb at Air Force Academy by Nick Sullivan the Department of Defense will investigate the Air Force Academy's 11 training programs after another increase in unwanted sexual contact, according to an annual report by the released by the Department of Defense on Friday. The increase follows a year-long trend across all three military service academies. The Air Force Academy said its sexual assault prevention and response programs are undergoing a redesign to address the issue. More than one in five women and an estimated 4.3% of men in the Air Force Academy experienced unwanted sexual contact, according to the 2021-2022 Report on Sexual Harassment and Violence at the Military Service Academies. There is nothing that erodes trust and tears down teams faster than sexual harassment and violence. As warfighters, this impacts the mission and our readiness. We need a culture reset. Lieutenant General Richard Clark, Air Force Academy Superintendent, said in a news release, Addressing sexual harassment is Clark's top priority, he said. Last fall, the Air Force Academy began a holistic sexual assault prevention and response redesign in which it conducted 77 interviews, collected feedback, and analyzed data from Academy programs. In January, a team of cadets, permanent party members, alumni, and response team members worked with subject matter experts to identify what works in its training and culture. Participants identified 44 ideas that are being evaluated. The redesign of sexual assault programming will focus on cadet culture, command and community, and framework systems and policies. The Air Force Academy will develop an implementation plan in the coming months. Courses begin in basic training and continue through graduation, and are incorporated into military training, academic training, and athletics. Clark said in a letter to cadets, Despite these efforts, it's clear from the SHNV report that we are falling short. I want you to hear it from me. This trend is unacceptable. Congress requires the Defense Department to annually assess the success of its sexual harassment and assault policies and trainings. Estimated rates of sexual harassment and unwanted sexual contact increased across the military service academies in the latest report. The U.S. Naval, Military, and Air Force Academies collectively received 206 reports of sexual assault, an increase of 45 over the previous academic year. The Naval Academy was the primary driver behind this increase, nearly doubling its number of 2021 reports with 63.
The Air Force Academy had 57 reports, an increase of two over the previous year, and the Military Academy remained the same with 50 reports, according to the report's data. A modest increase in reported sexual assault cases at the Air Force Academy was enough to record the most in at least 17 years. The three academies also experienced low report rates, with just 14% of estimated 1,136 people who experienced unwanted sexual contact reporting the incident. Those found to have perpetuated sexual harassment and violence under my command will be held accountable, Clark said in the release. Every single complaint is taken seriously and will be handled in line with local laws and the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Daylight Saving Time Starts Sunday. See DMV's Tips for Monday's Drowsy Drivers by Abby Sukup. Daylight Saving Time begins 2 a.m. Sunday, which means it's time to set our clocks forward an hour to welcome longer days as the warm season progresses and unfortunately lose an hour of precious sleep. Springing ahead means you might wake up feeling more tired than usual. During this time, the Colorado Department of Motor Vehicles is reminding the public to rest up before the Monday morning commute. According to a 2020 study by the University of Colorado Boulder, fatal car crashes that year spiked by 6% during the work week of the spring time change, resulting in an additional 28 deaths a year. Colorado DMV has offered warning signs to stay safe. Notice if you're finding it hard to focus on the road frequent blinking, or heavy eyelids, starting to daydream and having disconnected thoughts, having trouble remembering the last few miles driven, missing an exit or ignoring traffic signs, finding it hard to keep your head up or nodding off, drifting from your lane, tailgating, or hitting a shoulder rumble strip, feeling restless and irritable, or becoming aggravated by common annoyances such as sitting in traffic. According to the National Sleep Foundation, if you find yourself running on six hours of sleep or less, your chances of falling asleep at the wheel triple. The foundation also said drivers under 25, shift workers, or individuals working long hours, commercial drivers, and business travelers fall into the category of being at risk for sleep-deprived driving. Additionally, the DMV recommends planning trips ahead and driving with a friend during long road trips to help monitor for signs of drowsy driving. The department said if you find yourself feeling fatigued at the wheel, pull over and get some rest before continuing. Icon Pass Prices Announced for 2023-24 Ski Season by Seth Boster New prices have been announced for the Icon Pass, an increasingly popular season pass for Colorado skiers. The 2023-24 pass will go on sale Thursday. The Altera Mountain owners of the Icon Pass announced Thursday. It'll be the sixth season of the pass, which debuted in 2018 as an alternate to Vail Resorts' time-honored Epic Pass. For the best access, Seven days at Arafo Basin, Copper Mountain, Eldora Mountain, Winter Park, Aspen Snowmass, and Steamboat, along with about 50 other resorts worldwide, 
Icon's early bid deal starts at $1,159. The Icon Base Pass is listed at $829, granting five days at the Colorado destinations, except Snowmass, which is also returning reservations for Icon visitors next season. Customers renewing passes can get up to $100 off, according to the announcement. New buyers can catch spring snow this April at Winter Park and Steamboat, among other American mountains, it was also announced. Compared with starting prices from March 2022, Icon Pass Passes are up more than 7%, which is in line with the year-to-year -year increases for 2023-24 Epic Pass products, which Vail Resorts announced Tuesday. Those passes are start at less than 1000 again from a 20% price cut in 2021. Another icon option is the $259 Session Pass, which offers a range of 2, 3, and 4 days at 39 ski areas, including A Basin, Copper Mountain, Winter Park, Eldora, and Steamboat. For more information on pricing and benefits, go to iconpass.com. At least two dead in California storm. Fresno, California. At least two people have died as the first of two atmospheric river storms descended Friday on California, prompting widespread evacuation orders as it flooded creeks and rivers and dropped warm, heavy rain atop the state's near-record snowpack. One person, who has not been identified, was killed when a portion of the roof collapsed at a coffee distribution warehouse in Oakland, authorities said. He was a worker at the facility where at least one other employee was injured in the collapse. The California Governor's Office of Emergency Services did not confirm details of the second death. Director Nancy Ward said approximately 9,400 people are under evacuation orders statewide, and about 54,000 are without power. The Office of Emergency Services has readied high-water vehicles, search and rescue teams, fire resources, and other emergency operations to respond to areas most vulnerable to flooding and overtopped rivers, Ward said. President Joe Biden approved an emergency declaration request from Governor Gavin Newsom, authorizing the Department of Homeland Security and Federal Emergency Management Agency to support state and local responses to the storm. Newsom proclaimed a state of emergency in 34 counties, activating the National Guard and other state agencies to respond to storm-related emergencies. California is deploying every tool we have to protect communities from the relentless and deadly storms battering our state, Newsom said. In these dangerous and challenging conditions, it is crucial that Californians remain vigilant and follow all guidance from local emergency responders. By Friday, the Pineapple Express storm which is gathering warm, subtropical moisture from Hawaii, has made landfall in several communities as it carved a path from the central coast toward the southern Sierra. This is an unrivaled, unparalleled weather event not experienced in several decades, Chris Matarokia, Science and Operations Officer with the National Weather Service in Hanford, said during a briefing in Fresno. There will be high water in areas that are usually not impacted so everyone needs to be ready, 
combined with snowmelt, the Kings River, along with the smaller streams like Mill Creek, will be pushed to limits which are unimaginable. Swarm of quakes at Alaska volcano could mean eruption. Anchorage, Alaska A swarm of earthquakes occurring over the past few weeks has intensified at a remote Alaska volcano dormant for over a century, a possible indication of an impending eruption. The Alaska Volcano Observatory raised the alert level to advisory status for Tanaga Volcano late Tuesday, after the quakes became very vigorous. We started seeing a whole lot of earthquakes occurring, one after the other, several per minute, said John Power, a research geophysicist with the U.S. Geological Survey stationed in Anchorage at the Alaska Volcano Observatory. There have been hundreds of small earthquakes, none larger than magnitude 2.75, but they are concentrated beneath the summit of the volcano, he said. That indicates that we're seeing significant unrest at the volcano, Power said. Whether or not this will lead to an eruption is something we can't say at this point in time, he said, but we are concerned about it enough that we have gone and elevated the warning level. While the increase causes concern, he said many times earthquake activity will drop off with no eruption. It's anybody's guess as to where this particular round of earthquake activity may end up, he said. The volcano is on an uninhabited island in the western Yulatint, about 1,250 miles southwest of Anchorage. There are no communities or structures there, but Attic, a city of about 170 residents on another island, is about 65 miles away and could see ashfall. If the volcano were to erupt, the biggest threat would be to aircraft. Aleutians are below the routes that jets fly between North America and Asia. Previous eruptions had both ash clouds and vicious lava that moves very slowly away from the mountain, much like what happened with the massive eruption at Mount St. Helens in Washington State in 1980. Silicon Valley Bank Seized by FDIC as Depositors Pull Cash by Ken Sweet, Santa Clara, California the U.S. rushed to seize the assets of Silicon Valley Bank on Friday after it experienced a run on the bank, the largest failure of a financial institution since Washington Mutual during the height of the financial crisis more than a decade ago. Silicon Valley, the nation's 16th largest bank, failed after depositors, mostly technology workers and venture capital-backed companies, hurried to withdraw money this week as anxiety over the bank's balance sheet spread. Silicon Valley was heavily exposed to the tech industry, and there is a little chance of contagion in the banking sector similar to the chaos in the months leading up to the Great Recession more than a decade ago. The biggest banks, those most likely to cause a systemic economic issue, have a healthy balance sheets and plenty of capital. In 2007, the biggest financial crisis since the Great Depression rippled across the globe after mortgage-backed securities tied to ill-advised housing loans rippled from the U.S. to Asia and Europe. The panic on Wall Street led to the collapse of the storied Lehman Brothers, founded in 1847. 
Because major banks had extensive exposure to one another, it led to a cascading disruption throughout the global financial system, putting millions out of work. However, there has been unease in the banking sector all week and the collapse of Silicon Valley pushed shares of almost all financial institutions lower Friday, shares that had already tumbled by double digits since Monday. Silicon Valley Bank's failure arrived with incredible speed, with some industry analysts on Friday suggesting it was a good company and still likely a wise investment. Silicon Valley Bank executives were trying to raise capital early Friday and find additional investors. However, trading in the bank shares was halted before the opening bell due to extreme volatility. Shortly before noon Eastern, the Federal Depo Deposit Insurance Corporation moved to shutter the bank. Notably, the FDIC did not wait until the close of business to seize the bank, as is typical in an orderly wind-down of a financial institution. The FDIC could not immediately find a buyer for the bank's assets, signaling how fast depositors had cashed out. The bank's remaining uninsured deposits will now be locked up in receivership. The bank had $209 billion in total assets at the time of failure, the FDIC said. It was unclear how much of its deposits were above the $250,000 insurance limit at the moment, but previous regulatory reports showed that much of Silicon Valley Bank's deposits exceeded that limit. The FDIC said Friday that deposits below the $250,000 limit would be available Monday morning. Silicon Valley Bank still appeared stable this year, but on Thursday it announced plans to raise up to $1.75 billion in order to strengthen its capital position. That sent investors scurrying and shares plunged 60%. They rocketed lower again Friday before the open of the NASDAQ where it is traded. As its name implied, Silicon Valley Bank was a major financial conduit between the technology sector, its founders, and startups, as well as its workers. Hundreds of companies held their operating capital with the bank, and it was seen as good business sense to develop a relationship with Silicon Valley Bank if a founder wanted to find new investors or go public. We saw building a relationship with Silicon Valley Bank as a logical step, given their reach, said Ashley Turner, CEO of Farmerbox, a company that delivers food as medicine to Medicaid and Medicare recipients. While Turner has money in other banks and can make payroll, she said a good portion of her business's profits are now locked up with the bank. But Silicon Valley's connections to the tech sector became a liability rapidly. Technology stocks have been hit hard in the past 18 months after a growth surge during the pandemic and layoffs have spread throughout the industry. U.S. reports new hiring surge. Additional 311,000 jobs in February, easily enough to keep pressure on the Fed to raise rates again, by Christopher Rugeber. Washington. America's employers added a substantial 311,000 jobs in February, fewer than January's huge gain, but enough to keep pressure on the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates aggressively to fight inflation. The unemployment rate rose to 3.6 percent, 
from a 53-year low of 3.4% as more Americans began searching for work, but not all of them found jobs. Friday's report from the government made clear that the nation's job market remains fundamentally healthy, with many employers still eager to hire. Fed Chair Jerome Powell told Congress this week that the Fed would likely ratchet up its rate hikes if signs continued to point to a robust economy and persistently high inflation. A strong job market typically leads businesses to raise pay and then pass their higher labor costs onto customers through higher prices. February's sizable job growth shows that so far, hiring is continuing to strengthen this year after having eased in late 2022. From October through December, the average monthly job gain was 284,000. That average has surged to 351,000 for the past three months. Economists pointed to other data in Friday's report that suggested that the job market, while still hot, may be better balancing employers' need for workers and the supply of unemployed people. More people have been coming off the sidelines to seek work, a trend that makes it easier for businesses to fill the millions of jobs that remain open. The proportion of Americans who either have a job or are looking for one has risen for three straight months to 62.5% the highest level since COVID-19 struck three years ago. Still, it remains below its pre-pandemic level of 63.3%. With more potential hires to choose from, employers seem less under pressure now to, detangle, to dangle higher pay to attract or retain workers. Average wage growth slowed in February, rising to just 0.2% to $33.09, the smallest monthly increase in a year. Measured year-over-year, year, though, hourly pay is up 4.6%, well above the pre-pandemic trend. Even so, that's down from average annual gains above 5% last year. What the Fed may decide to do about interest rates when it meets later this month remains uncertain. The Fed's decision will rest, in part, on its assessment of Friday's job data and next week's report on consumer inflation in February. Last month, the government's report on January inflation had raised alarms by showing that consumer prices had, had re-accelerated on a month-to-month -month basis. Ahead of the February jobs data, many economists had said they thought the Fed would announce a substantial half-point increase in its key short-term interest rate rather than a quarter-point hike as it did at its meeting in February. Friday's more moderate hiring and wage figures, though, led some analysts to suggest that the central bank may not need to move so aggressively at this month's meeting. There's clear signs of cooling when you dig deeper into the numbers, said Mike Scordellis, head of economics at Truist, a bank. I think it makes the case for the Fed to say, we're still rate hike, we'll still hike rates, but we're not going to do a half-point hike. Nationally, nearly all of last month's hiring occurred in mostly lower-paid services industries, with a category that includes restaurants, bars, hotels, and entertainment adding 105,000 jobs, its second straight month of strong gains. Warmer-than-usual weather likely contributed to that increase. With the weather likely allowing more building projects to continue, construction companies added 24,000 jobs. Google antitrust case can proceed. 
Judge Nix's Request to Move Hearings by Matthew Barakat Falls Church, Virginia A judge has rejected a request from Google to transfer a federal antitrust lawsuit against it from Virginia to New York. The ruling Friday from U.S. District Judge Leonie Brinkema in Alexandria, Virginia, is a victory for the Justice Department and several states, including Virginia, that sued Google earlier this year and wanted to keep the case in the Commonwealth. The lawsuit alleges that Google holds a virtual monopoly in online advertising that works to the detriment of consumers. The complaint alleged that Google corrupted legitimate competition in the ad tech industry by engaging in a systematic campaign to seize control of the wide swath of high-tech tools used by publishers, advertisers, and brokers to facilitate digital advertising. Google said that similar lawsuits, including one filed by the Texas Attorney General, have been consolidated to a single case that's now being heard in New York. Google's lawyers said consolidating the Virginia case as well would improve judicial efficiency and reduce the risk that courts would produce conflicting rulings. Justice Department lawyers, though, argued that the case should remain in Virginia. They said that federal antitrust cases are exempt from the law that encourages consolidation of similar lawsuits filed in multiple jurisdictions. They also argued that their lawsuit would be bogged down if it were bunched in with all the consolidated cases. Stocks tumble as Wall Street wonders what will break next. New York Fear rattled Wall Street and stocks tumbled Friday on worries about what's next to break under the weight of rising interest rates following the biggest U.S. bank failure in nearly 15 years. The S&P 500 dropped 1.4% to cap its worst week since September. That's despite a highly anticipated report on Friday showing pay raises for workers are slowing and other signals Wall Street wants to see the cooling pressure on inflation. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 345 points, or 1.1%, while the Nasdaq Composite sank 1.8%. Some of the market's sharpest drops again came from the financial industry, where stocks tanked for a second day. Financial struggles came amid what strategists in the BOFA Global Research Report called the crashy vibes of March. Markets have been twitchy on worries that high inflation is difficult to subdue. Moderna slated to hire around 2,000 people. Moderna said Friday it was planning to hire about 2,000 employees globally by year's end and set up new offices on the West Coast as it aims to scale up development of new products amid declining COVID vaccine sales. The COVID vaccine maker said it will open new offices in California and Seattle, adding that its genomics unit will expand to South San Francisco. The latest move comes at a time when Moderna has been working on developing vaccines for skin cancer, flu, and respiratory syntagovirus, RSV, using its mRNA technology. 
which if approved would significantly boost the biotech company that currently relies heavily on its COVID-19 shot. The firm had about 3,900 full-time employees as of December 31st, according to a regulatory filing. Start Summer Crops with Seeds Indoors by Frederica Bogardis, Colorado Master Gardener. If you find yourself dreaming of flowers and fresh, fresh vegetables during this time of the year, then you are a gardener. While it is a bit early to start planting outside, you can get a head start and a gardening fix by starting some summer crops indoors. Seed starting is a very scalable project. While you might long for a greenhouse, a waterproof table next to a bright window, or a few lights can offer you the opportunity to start a few seeds indoors. A middle ground might be a utility shelf unit with some lights mounted above each shelf. Newly germinated seedlings need about 12 hours a day of direct light. You can use incandescent grow lights, LEDs, or fluorescent bulbs. You will need soilless seed starting medium and some small containers. Plant plug trays work well, but there are lots of other options. The idea is to germinate the seed in small containers and then, once true leaves and roots emerge, transplant to larger containers. Moisture levels are critical to success. Using vented covers can be very helpful. Some seeds need to be in warm soil to germinate, and heat mats are helpful for them. Room temperature should be 670, 60 to 70 degrees. The most important step is to read the instructions on the back of the seed packet. The packet will tell you what conditions the seed requires to germinate and how soon to plant the seeds indoors. In our region, the third week in May is a good bet for our last frost date. Timing seed planting is quite important. Start starting too early and plants may outgrow containers before the weather permits transplant into the garden. Start too late and plants may not be ready for transplant. Annual flowers are fun to start indoors. Marigolds, zinnias, and calendula are among many that are easy to start. Perennial flowers can also be started from seed, but not all will bloom the first year. Native plants can be started from seed, though many require a special treatment called cold stratification. Basically, you have to subject the seed to winter-like conditions, usually by putting it in your refrigerator for a few weeks. There is a method called winter sowing which uses milk jugs outside the cold to ac accomplish the stratification and then germination of seeds that require the treatment. Tomatoes and basil probably top the list of vegetables and herbs gardeners like to start indoors. Pay attention to days to maturity for tomatoes, that is, days from transplant to harvest. Because we suffer late spring and early fall frosts, Varieties that are longer than 85 days might offer a very short harvest window. Top Reasons You Should Use Vinegar in Laundry by Hunter Boyce, The Atlanta Journal-Constitution No, it's not a myth. Vinegar can truly improve your washing, making your clothes cleaner than they ever were before but you don't need it for everything. 
Most detergents are formulated at a specific pH to work best, and directly adding vinegar can interrupt the active ingredients and actually create more problems like discoloration and poor cleaning. Tide senior scientist Sammy Wang told MarthaStewart.com. Vinegar has a low pH, typically 3 to 5, so it can help dissolve away residues that bind body soils to fabrics. From combating underarm odor to brightening white clothing, here are the top reasons to use vinegar in your laundry. Mildew and underarm odor. According to the spruce, the acetic acid found in distilled white vinegar is strong enough to dissolve residues left by soaps and detergents while remaining weak enough to damage fabrics. Adding half a cup of vinegar to the final rinse cycle of your laundry will lead to brighter, clearer colors. The vinegar also acts as a whitener for stained white socks, dirty dishcloths, and delicates. To remove underarm odor from clothes, keep a spray bottle full of undiluted white wind vinegar on hand. Spray the vinegar directly on the underarm fabric and let it rest for 10 minutes. Then toss the piece of clothing into the washing machine with the rest of your laundry. Hypoallergenic Alternative Washing your clothes with half a cup of distilled white vinegar instead of standard detergents is a great hypoallergenic alternative, Healthline reported. People with sensitive skin can sometimes be irritated by the harsh chemicals used in certain detergents. Utilizing vinegar in place of these, more standard detergents, can lead to less irritation while keeping your laundry clean. A great fabric softener. Vinegar, vinegar can be a great fabric softener to alternative, according to SF Gate. To use vinegar as a fabric softener, pour half of, of a cup of distilled white vinegar into the detergent or fabric softener dispenser during the final rinse cycle. Adding a few drops of essential oils can give your clothes a wonderful fragrance as well. Top Organizational Tips by Kathy Hobbs Whether it's a small closet, large pantry, or linen closet you want to keep tidy, organization is key to maximizing space and productivity. One philosophy that works, everything should have a place and be in place. But what is the best way to achieve this sense of functional functionality and order? Here are some of our top organizational tips. 1. Keep items in clear containers or jars. Being able to see what you have is half the struggle to help prevent purchasing items you already own. 2. Practice the one-in, one-out rule. 3. Purge seasonally. Instead of the once-in-a-year cleanup, consider evaluating what to keep and what to toss more often. 4. Buy bins, baskets, or containers to store small items. 5. Scan it. Gone are the days where boxes of documents or file cabinets full of paper are a necessity. 6. Just say no. Say no to items or inherited heirlooms you simply don't have space for or need for that will sit in a closet or attic and collect dust. 7. Take new items out of boxes. Boxes are bulky and take up a lot of space. 8. Go slim. Huggable hangers and collapsible items can help maximize space. 9. Create cubbies or shelves to house items of various sizes. 
10. Consider built-ins. Be thoughtful and purposeful. Obituaries and life tributes. Harry William Martin, April 9, 1934, March 5, 2023. The viewing for the service in Denver will be held on Monday, March 13, 2023 from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. at Scott United Methodist Church, 2880 Garfield Street, Denver, Colorado, 80205 with the funeral service immediately following from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. The internment will be held at Fort Logan National Cemetery, 4400 W. Kenyon Avenue, Denver, Colorado, 80236 at 2 p.m. In lieu of flowers, donations should be made to the American Cancer Society. You will forever remain in the hearts of your family. Our love will never fade. Charles Rolla, November 23, 1950, February 28, 2023. Charles Michael Rolla passed away from a long and courageous fight to brain cancer. He was 72 years old. He died on Tuesday, February 28 in Colorado Springs. Mike, as he was known by friends and family, was born on November 23, 1950, in Muskogee, Oklahoma, to Frank and Regina Rolla. Mike's family moved to Colorado Springs in 1961 to acquire, with Frank's father and mother, Joseph and Mary Rolla, the Village Inn Restaurant and Pub Lounge, which was located downtown on Pikes Peak Avenue and was a favorite of Colorado Springs locals. Mike attended grade school at Sacred Heart and High School at the Abbey in Canyon City, where he graduated in 1969. Mike went to Arizona State University, where he majored in anthropology. After graduating, he moved back to the Springs. In the early 80s, he then landed a job as a bellboy at the five-star Broadmoor Hotel. Mike was a hard worker, and little by little, he worked his way up the ladder. After starting as a bellboy, he then moved up to pool technician and lifeguard. Then he worked in the paint shop as a painter and became assistant manager of engineering and then was promoted to operations manager of engineering where he oversaw carpenters, plumbers, electricians, seamstress, and floor techs. After 30 years of service, he retired from the Broadmoor. Mike took it upon himself to live with his mother and father and was there for them to help in any way he could. Mike was not only a very devoted son to Frank and Regina, but he was also very devoted in his faith in God. After he retired from the Broadmoor, he then spent his time serving the Lord and giving his services to the church. He became active as a member in the Knights of Columbus, with dedication and willingness just the same as his career at the Broadmoor. Mike worked his way up the Knights and eventually became Grand Knight. He was on the board of the local diocese and became operations manager for the remodeling of Sacred Heart Church. His past experience encouraged him to oversee the remodeling was done right and on time. He took pride in what was accomplished 
and in October 17, 2018, the church was awarded the Civil Civic Rehabilitation and Restoration Award from the Historic Preservation Alliance of Colorado Springs. He had many interests. He loved to travel and enjoyed scuba diving and target shooting. He loved spending time with family. His favorite time of year was Christmas. Mike loved singing Christmas songs no matter what time of the year. Mike was a selfless man who loved to help and serve others. He attended daily Mass and Sunday Mass regularly, said the rosary every day, and would fast. He is survived by three of his four brothers, Frank Rolla Jr., Pete Rolla, and Pat Rolla. Mike never had children of his own, but was loved and adored by his four nieces and four nephews, Kevin, Gina, Bridget, Francesca, Christian, Angelo, Peter, and Amy, and also by his five grandnieces, Gaby and Finley, Chloe May, Mia, and Charlotte. He was predeceased by his brother, Joseph Rolla, and sister, Gina Mary Rolla. Mike's funeral will be at Sacred Heart Catholic Church on Tuesday, March 14th. Rosary at 9.30 a.m. and the funeral will then start at 10 a.m. Burial must be immediately after Mass followed by a meal of compassion at Sacred Heart Catholic Church Parish Hall, following where there will be refreshments and memorabilia to enjoy while waiting. To all who knew Mike, this is a huge loss, but know he is at peace. So let us take after Mike and trust in God and love and cherish those around us. Weather. Today we will see mostly cloudy skies with a 55% chance of showers, high temperature of 51 degrees, humidity of 43%, south wind 9 to 14 miles per hour. The record high temperature for today is 77 degrees set in 1989. Thank you for joining us for the Colorado Springs Gazette. My name is Simran. AINC programming is brought to you in part by funding from the Quick Foundation. AINC presents your low vision resource of the day the Center for People with Disabilities. This organization provides advocacy and training for people with disabilities. Learn more by visiting cpwd.org or calling 303-442-8662 or emailing info at cpwd.org. If you enjoyed this program, Please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado.